Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. And I'm Ian Mills. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. Today we're going to be discussing Margaret Mitchell's New Testament Envoys in the Context of Greco-Roman Diplomatic and Epistolary Conventions, the Example of Timothy and Titus. This was published in the Journal of Biblical Literature in 1992. And it's a Paul episode. I think we're a little overdue for a Paul episode, aren't we? I guess. Uh, Ian never (laughs) thinks we're overdue for Paul episodes. (laughs) True. Laura, what's this article about? Right. So Mitchell's article is about the role of messengers and envoys in Paul's missionary strategy. Mitchell is focusing on the fact that the people that Paul sent in his stead to deliver letters or to work with churches they, they weren't a plan B for Paul. They weren't something that Paul did only when he couldn't actually be at a church. And these were just sort of a poor substitute. Uh, the sending of emissaries and the sending of missionaries was a very critical part of Paul's mission. And they could do things that Paul necessarily couldn't do himself. Mitchell is responding particularly to a minor point in an article by Robert Funk on, quote unquote, apostolic parousia in the Pauline letters. So the article is all about explaining the importance and some of the conventions that govern Paul's visits to his churches, and how he makes his presence felt even when he's not there. Funk has an influential stratification or classification of the different ways an author can make their presence felt. Um, That is, personal presence, showing up, sending an emissary, and sending a letter. In this article, Funk argues that there is a strict hierarchy of these sorts of parousia or appearances. Um, and he gets this from comments made in Elkdamas and Isocrates. And that is that personal presence is better than sending an emissary, and sending an, sending an emissary is better than sending a letter. Funk points to Romans 15, where Paul recounts his mission, his call, and describes his, you know, life's work in terms of his missionary travel. He's done this loop around the world from the, from the east to the west and argues that for Paul, physical presence was primary and letters were a sorry substitute. And it is to this that Margaret Mitchell is objecting. Right. So what Mitchell wants to draw attention to is the fact that emissaries can do things that Paul can't do. This isn't something that's just generally true of envoys in the ancient world. It's also very particular to what kind of a person Paul was. Paul's presence was apparently not terribly effective, and he draws attention to this a few times in his letters. And I think we forget this a lot because of the way that Paul operates and acts. There are a few times in Paul's letters where Paul mentions the fact that he's just not really that great of a speaker, and he's not that good at being uh, present in a church and dealing with conflict and winning people over. He draws attention to this twice in Second Corinthians, uh, where he clearly thinks that his letters actually are somewhat superior to his own presence. So at Second Corinthians 10.10, he says, For they say, talking about his opponents, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. In this situation, the letter is even better than sending Paul himself because Paul seems to be a better writer than he is speaker. Another occasion where letters are superior and more appropriate, where Paul is not doing a great job mediating a personal dispute, and uh, a letter actually seems to create some distance between him and the people that he's fighting with in order to solve problems. We see this at the beginning of 2 Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 1. 
Right here, he actually says that he doesn't want to come in person. He's sending a letter instead to avoid an explosion. So in verse 23, it was to spare you that I did not come again to Corinth. So I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. I wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. So Paul here is saying he chose to send a letter instead of visiting in person. And sort of contrafunk, he's not apologizing for this. This isn't mistake or sorry substitute. He's doing something specific with a letter that he couldn't do in person or that showing up in person wouldn't have been effective to accomplish. Just a quick side note here. On Mitchell's schema, 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 10 are different letters. You can go back and listen to our last Mitchell episode, episode 14. Yeah. Envoys and letters are sometimes a strategic choice. Uh, Sometimes they're the equivalent of taking a walk around the block when you're fighting with your partner. (laughs) And sometimes, uh, I just got married, or sometimes they are able to communicate, Paul is able to express himself and communicate more effectively through a letter than he would be by himself. Right. And that second one is the really important one for Mitchell. Right. That sending an envoy and sending a letter sometimes is accomplishing something in the ancient world and for Paul that showing up doesn't do. And and to demonstrate this in characteristic Mitchell style, she turns to wider Greco-Roman conventions. I love Mitchell scholars. <laughs> Particularly conventions surrounding sending emissaries or envoys. What's an emissary? How does this work in antiquity? Mitchell argues that Paul is following some very classical uh, understandings of how your emissaries work. And there's two governing principles in the ancient world for when you send an envoy, who this person is and how they're to be treated. So the first, uh, the first principle of sending an envoy in the ancient world is that an envoy should be, quote, treated according to the status of the one by whom he was sent not the status he individually holds. So if you send a slave on your behalf, that person should not be treated like a slave. This person should be treated like the owner who sent him. And Mitchell gives a bunch of examples from wider pagan literature, but we don't want to spend this whole time talking about Cicero. Uh, She also very interestingly shows that these conventions surrounding sending envoys and emissaries appear throughout the entire New Testament, not because they're drawing on some some well of oral tradition at the at the foundation of the church having to do with emissaries, but because conventions about emissaries and envoys are so widespread that that all the New Testament authors, First Clement, all these figures can just draw this from the air. So, so the first principle that Laura outlined uh, that you treat an envoy according to the status of the sender. So Matthew ten forty, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So here we have two layers of emissaries or envoys. We don't need to get into that. But here we see showing up in another work, this convention around how to treat an envoy. The second principle is that the envoy has the power and the ability to speak and act on behalf of the person who sent them, as long as they're doing this in in accordance with the person who sent them in the first place. So again... The parallels in the Gospel of John here are really big. Uh, Jesus talks all the time about speaking with the authority of God um, who sent Jesus. I think Mitchell thinks a lot of the Christology of the Gospels grows out of these conventions of envoys. 
Likewise, Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you, talking to the apostles, hears me. That is, the, the sent ones, <laughs> apostles, can speak with the authority of the sender. So this is a picture of how envoys worked in the ancient world. So what does this have to do with Paul? Mitchell argues that Paul clearly thinks of Timothy and Titus in particular as his envoys. Uh, he uses a lot of the same language that we see in antiquity to describe your emissaries. Uh, he uses these commissionary, commissioning formulas. Uh, he introduces them. He refers to their qualifications. He treats them like his agents in this respect. Another thing that we need to think about with these is that being an emissary is kind of a two-way street. Uh, on one hand, you will be representing the person who sent you to the community that you're, you're going to, but you're also representing that community back the other way. So Timothy speaks on behalf of Paul, he acts on behalf of Paul, but also he speaks on behalf of these embattled congregations. He speaks on behalf of the Thessalonians. He represents the Thessalonians to Paul, and he mediates that relationship uh, in both directions. So... In both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Corinthians 7, these messengers not only carry news to Paul's churches from Paul, but return with a message of existential importance back to Paul. And in re-narrating the correspondence, itself a convention of literature about envoys and emissaries, the message which these envoys bring back to Paul seems to be just as important as the message Paul has sent. So there's two key passages that Mitchell zeroes in on, uh, zeroes in on where uh, envoys are operating. Uh, the first is uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10, and uh, the second is 2 Corinthians uh, 7, 5 to 16. Uh, so the Thessalonians passage. Uh, in this case, the, the messenger is Timothy. Uh, he's been sent to the Thessalonians uh, on behalf of Paul, who uh, was separated from the Thessalonians very abruptly due to some kind of persecution. He sends Timothy to go see how the Thessalonians are doing, and then he brings back a message uh, from the Thessalonians back to Paul. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been, been encouraged. So clearly Timothy was received positively, and he brings back this report of mutual love and mutual care uh, and reaffirms the relationship for them. In 2 Corinthians, we see something similar, uh, particularly after a real conflict. Titus is serving as part of the reconciling process by bringing back word of the Corinthians' love for Paul back to Paul. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. In addition to your own consolation, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his mind has been set at rest by all of you. For if I have been somewhat boastful about you to him, I was not disgraced, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true as well. And his heart goes out all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you welcomed him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you.
Yeah, I, I want to move a bit beyond Mitchell here because I think Mitchell is um, Mitchell's a bit elusive here, and she she doesn't quite come out and say some of this stuff, but it's definitely strongly hinted at. It seems that what Mitchell is arguing is that part of what the power of these envoys are is that they're able to make something happen that wouldn't happen if Paul was actually there. The envoys are reporting back to Paul on what they have seen in the church. And this gives them a fair amount of power that they can report things that are happening there and they can sort of like, you know, sand off the the sharp edges of, uh, of their interaction there and can make Paul and these churches feel at peace with each other in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if Paul had actually been there. Particularly in the case of the of the Corinthian church, I think I, I think this is where you see this the most, is that Titus is very insistent that the Corinthians are expressing their particular love for Paul. And when Paul goes back and re-narrates this whole process, the the narrative seems to be one that both Paul and the Corinthians can live with, even if it's not quite what happened. That Paul is, uh, even though they, they, they had this horrible time of tension, and then Paul sent a messenger to express his great love for them, the Corinthians were warmed and they were full of love for uh, Paul, and they were so happy to have this messenger. They longed to see him, and they sent this messenger back with love for Paul. And now we just have all these warm, happy, loving feelings. And that's probably not what would have happened uh, if Paul had actually been there, because then the reality would have been a lot messier. Uh, The envoys have a fair amount of power in what they actually bring back and what they actually say. And this enables the relationship to go on without significant breaks because they have this ability to to, to mediate and to to express affection uh, between warring parties. Right. Mitchell hints at this, talking about the envoys serving as third parties, which the one of the combatants can't himself, in this case, do. So Paul can't mediate between himself and the people in Corinth he's in a fight with. But she doesn't go into much greater depth than that. What Mitchell really does is set up a backdrop against which we can understand the conventions surrounding envoys, and we can infer that Timothy and Titus must have played some significant role in coming to the church and speaking into the church and then bringing a message back to Paul. And Paul seems to suggest that this is the case, saying that in some instances he prefers to send envoys rather than show up in person. But unfortunately... We just don't have much more information. And so what they did, how this worked, how this affected the situation, Mitchell doesn't say because we just don't have the evidence. Nevertheless, I think it's important for us to realize that there must have been something more. And just because we can't reconstruct exactly what it was doesn't mean we shouldn't Remember that Paul wasn't just a letter writer or a missionary, but also sort of a hub for sending out emissaries and that these were integrated and essential parts of how he understood his project. The letter and the emissary, it seems, served just as essential a role in Paul's managing of the churches as did his physical presence. Awesome. That's another Mitchell article. We always can't commend her to you enough. 
We still haven't read the Big Mitchell book. We'll see if we ever get around to that. I'm glad you took over the JVL thing because I had to burp. Uh <laughs>